Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 25, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now we began Deuteronomy chapter 20 last weekend, but we ended at verse 9. And tonight's lesson is one of the more difficult ones. Because the overarching subject is holy war. And I hope you understand that a holy war is a war started by God. At his direct command, and it's overseen, and it's ended by God at his direct command. Now the fighting of the countless other wars that we've seen during our lifetimes, and even in the millennia preceding our era may have had good and just causes, and many were fought using God's holy name as a supposed pretext. But as we've discussed on numerous occasions, man has no authority to declare anything as holy, no matter how godly or righteous we might think it, it is. Now the Lord holds the soul right. To declare what is holy, what is common, what's unclean. Okay. To be sure, many wars are fought in the name of religion. That's not holy war. Thus, there are special rules that apply to holy warfare, and that's at the heart of what we're going to be studying today. Now, it, it might not seem so at first glance, but the words of chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 20, especially verses 10 to the end that we're about to encounter, have far-reaching effects. There are entire books written on nothing but these 11 verses. So profound is their impact on understanding the book of Joshua in particular, and also almost all the recorded and unrecorded history of Israel and the Promised Land. Now, of late, a new realm of theological understanding is coming forward, all based, really, on the God-ordained protocols of holy war. And this realm is what has come to be called, among evangelicals anyway, as spiritual warfare. Okay, of which many books have now been written. Some good, some so fanciful and full of witchcraft as to be dangerous. Now, that is, while warfare seems to be a strictly human endeavor, the result of colossal human failures, really, okay, in the Bible we even read of war in heaven. Therefore, there can be no doubt that warfare among men, at least holy warfare, has a definite and discernible spiritual component to it. And in fact, in addition to human warfare, there is also a kind of warfare in the spirit world that is confined, apparently, to the spirit world. But the subject of spiritual warfare as discussed in our modern era lies somewhere between these two extremes. Spiritual warfare is a, is a strange mix between the human and the spiritual. 
Now, while in the holy war to conquer Canaan, we see men fighting men. Behind the scenes, Yehovah was operating and orchestrating such that the outcome was predetermined. So at times, supernatural things occurred to secure the victory for Israel, such as when the walls of Jericho fell down. Now, strictly speaking, this was not spiritual warfare. Rather, the spiritual warfare that a few in the modern church are now recognizing as something that is apparently meant for our era to experience is about flesh and blood humans, believers in Messiah, coming into direct confrontation with evil spirit beings. Now, I don't know if or when we'll ever discuss spiritual warfare in detail in Torah class. If the Lord directs it, we'll certainly do it. I only bring this up because the way spiritual warfare is to be prosecuted is primarily based on what we're about to study. In other words, the concept of warfare as a paradigm that God uses to achieve his ultimate goal of peace on earth and goodwill towards men begins here in Deuteronomy where the subject is actually holy war. Now, all throughout the Bible... We find kings and prophets and even New Testament writers using warfare metaphors and illustrations to help explain to us what God is doing. What Israel should do in response and what Christ's mission is. And therefore what our duties as his followers are. St. Paul in Ephesians and Corinthians used warfare metaphors to motivate the followers of Yeshua to right living and to obedience to the word of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Wear the helmet of salvation. Wield the sword of the spirit. Be fellow soldiers with Christ, our warrior leader, in a battle against evil. Warfare was going to be the way The Lord brought all mankind under submission to him, but not necessarily warfare as man thinks of it, nor practice as men practice it. Holy warfare is a confrontation with evil that has been authorized by God. And no other warfare is holy warfare. Most of the wars we see in the Bible actually represent unauthorized warfare. Those wars were about men's agendas and their disinterest in following God's laws and commands in spirit and in truth. J. Maxwell said this about warfare in order to help us understand that while holy war was indeed an instrument of bringing divine policy to bear. War itself, common war, as determined by by men, does not carry with it the stamp of God's approval. Listen to what he said. Even in the Old Testament, David is denied the privilege of building the temple because his hands are stained with blood. One of the features of the coming messianic kingdom is the abolition of war. 
that our society today still resorts to war proves nothing except men are terribly resistant to the grace of God. King David's wars of conquest were not all necessarily holy wars. And when they were holy wars to some degree, he did not always prosecute them with the strict boundaries of God's laws concerning holy war. A holy warrior doing things God's ways does not have to live with blood guilt on his head. David bore blood guilt for the express reason that many of his decisions were carnal and they were self-serving in nature and the blood he spilled was at times for personal reasons and glory. And he paid a very steep price for it. That the messianic kingdom, the thousand year reign of Messiah, will endure no war is true. Yet, as is the irony that I've already stated earlier, it is the battle of Armageddon, the war to end all wars, that's going to propel us into an age where there will be no more war. Why? Because this is holy war. And Yeshua, our Messiah, will carry it out the way Joshua should have. All of God's enemies will be brought to destruction. And so, at least for a time, wickedness on earth will cease to exist. Now let me give you some other food for thought. And on yet another difficult and controversial topic. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll read the remainder of Deuteronomy 20. Last Saturday evening, we discussed the purpose and intent and context for the Torah principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I said that this was a principle meant to be used as the foundation for God's civil and criminal justice system. It was not a life principle to be used in personal relationships. We have a tendency in the world of Judeo-Christianity to mix up those godly instructions meant for use in the legal context with those used within interpersonal relationships. And I mentioned that Messiah spoke extensively on the difference between the two. Now, since holy warfare involves much destruction of animals and property and human life, then here is another Torah principle that needs to be brought back into proper context. Okay. The holy war rules of engagement demonstrate absolute intolerance, lack of mercy towards those whom the Lord has marked for destruction. So how do we square that God principle with one of Christ's most famous admonitions to love your enemies? I'm going to tell you straight away that a common answer to that dilemma is the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. The God whose nature never changes, changed. 
course not. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, chapter 30. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 38. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page uh, 1229. Matthew chapter 5. This is a chapter you all are pretty familiar with here. I'm going to start reading at verse 39 and read through the end. You have heard that our fathers were told an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack, carry it for two. When someone asks you to give him something, give it to him. When something wants to borrow something from you, lend it to him. You've heard that our fathers were told, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then you will become children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun shine on good and bad people alike. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. What reward do you get if you love only those who love you back? Why, even tax collectors do that. And if you're friendly only to your friends, are you really doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the Goyim, the Gentiles, do that. Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Notice very carefully... The context within which Yeshua spoke his words to love your enemies. It's actually said in the context of being over and against an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because an eye for an eye was all about proper proportionality within the legal justice system. When Jesus spoke about loving your enemies, it wasn't about the reversal of the legal aspect of God's justice system. It was about behavior and personal relationships. Your enemies are those acquaintances or relatives or anyone who might have something against you, for good reason or not. It's not referring to a thief who might come and commit the crime of robbery against you. Your enemies in this context also refer to those in authority over you or someone who might be close to you that treats you unfairly or insults you or offends you, hurts your feelings. It's not referring to somebody who took a knife and killed your child or your wife in an act of violence. See, being slapped on the cheek and you're turning the other is all about being unjustly berated or unfairly dealt with and your refusal to take revenge and do the same thing back. Slapping someone on the cheek was a Hebrew idiom for humiliating someone. It's not about assault and battery. In the Middle East, humiliating someone caused them to lose face. And so it was usual that revenge, even to the point of blood feuds and murder, was an order. It was a huge factor in Jesus' day. It remains a huge factor today. So it's not about the commission of a crime 
like moving a boundary marker, hoping to steal somebody's land. In one case, there's a justice system set up to deal with those criminal violations against you. In the other, love your enemies, these are personal issues left for you to deal with on a personal level. You see, there's this enormous gulf between God's enemies and our enemies. Christ tells us to love our enemies. He doesn't ever say, love God's enemies. For us to love God's enemies is to dissolve any union with God. We're never to accept that which God rejects. Conversely, even though we may not have anything personally against God's enemies, we're not to accept them. We're not, I mean, we are to reject them just like God does. Now, let me be very clear. (laughs) Hear me. Somebody who goes to a different congregation than you do and adheres to a different set of doctrines is probably not God's enemy. Okay? Someone that you might view as even a really bad person because of their immorality in your eyes isn't even necessarily God's enemy. God defines his enemies as those who are in total rebellion against him to such a degree that they'll probably not ever be eligible for redemption. It's those, God's enemies are those who he has marked for destruction because of their determined bent against him and who instead have determined to stand with the evil one. Most of the time, we might not be able to discern which is which from an earthly viewpoint. So we have to be pretty careful how we judge that. We probably ought to err on the side of love and mercy. I mean, if ever the guidance of the Torah and the Spirit is needed, it's with this kind of an issue. Now also understand that from a biblical perspective, and I've covered this in depth in past lessons, to hate someone is not so much about an enormous emotional dislike bordering on the homicidal as we tend to think of it in our modern culture. It much more means to thoroughly reject something or someone. Or in some cases, to reject what that person believes or stands for. To love, conversely, is to wholeheartedly accept rather than to simply like a person on a deeply emotional level. And please don't think I'm saying that emotion isn't part of the equation. It is. Okay, It's just much less than what we typically ascribe to it, whereby we make love and hate an almost purely emotional endeavor. A person that is hated by God is rejected by God. A person who is loved by God is accepted by God. Okay, and that is more the sense of, of hate and love that we ought to grasp when we read the Holy Scriptures. And it's the sense that as believers we need to emulate. Now let's read the rem- remainder of Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. We're going to read from verses 10 to the end.
doesn't get any easier. When you advance on a town to attack it, first offer it terms for peace. If it accepts the terms for peace and opens its gates to you, then all the people there are to be put to forced labor and work for you. However, if they refuse to make peace with you, but prefer to make war against you, you're to put it under siege. When Adonai, your God, hands it over to you, you are to put every male to the sword. However, you are to take as booty for yourself the men, or rather the women, the little ones, the livestock, everything in the city, all of its spoil. Yes, you will feed on your enemy's spoil, which Adonai, your God, has given to you. This is what you're to do to all the towns which are a great distance from you which are not the towns of these nations. As for the towns of these peoples, which Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance, you're not to allow anything that breathes to live. You must destroy them completely. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevi, the Yavusi, Jebusites. As Adonai your God has ordered you so that they won't teach you to follow their abominable practices which they do for their gods, thus causing you to sin against Adonai, your God. When in making war against a town in order to capture it, you lay siege to it for a long time. You're not to destroy its trees, cutting them down with an axe. You can eat their fruit, so don't cut them down. After all, are the trees in the field human beings so that you have to besiege them too? However, if you know that certain trees provide no food, you may destroy them and cut them down in order to build siege works against the town, making war with you until it falls. This is a really challenging chapter. It has led to all kinds of doctrines and apologetics and rationalizations and misunderstandings among believers. That's why I wanted to prepare you, to a small degree at least, before we continued so that you could gain some perspective. Well, here's a little more perspective. We don't have to become very old before we look back on our lives and see that there were golden opportunities to do something important and worthwhile and lasting. But they were missed. And often that opportunity never arises again in quite that same impactful way. Now the reason is usually that a fork in the road of life has been encountered and one way sets us on one track and the other way sets us on a different track. Now further on a higher level, as societies evolve and change some practices and customs right, and, and they become perceived is ancient and outdated and except in the most extreme cases they're, they're perhaps jettisoned never to be seen again therefore what was possible at one time in history say 300 years ago 400 years ago isn't even possible today technology and civilization have moved on for instance something fairly recent what would have happened in the late 1930s, had the world not decided to stick our collective heads in the sand and ignore what Hitler was doing in Europe? What if we did what so many military leaders and world leaders knew we should do, but there was just no political will to do it? 
For one thing, half of the world's Jewish population wouldn't have been murdered. A hundred million human lives from scores of nations probably would have been spared. If only we would have taken the opportunity to stop a madman before he became so powerful that the price to end his reign of terror would be world war. The world is a different place now. Not for the better, I don't think. And there is no going back. That opportunity was missed. Well, Joshua and Israel are about to be given an opportunity to exterminate unimaginable wickedness. It would have meant a large-scale destruction of human beings done in a manner that we would consider so barbaric and ruthless as to be almost unconscionable. Yet, in the world of that era, it operated precisely in a way that warfare of that kind was more the norm than the exception. It was awful, but it was usual. Everyone understood the rules of tribal societies and the constant warfare and how how nations came and went and that people dying in mass wasn't that abnormal. The Israelites indeed could not only have pushed out the undesired from Canaan, but they could have destroyed God's enemies that he instructed Israel to destroy if they chose to. But instead they chose to go another way. They followed, or rather they allowed, God's enemies to remain. And they found out the hard way. That if you are a friend of God, then God's enemies will eventually become your enemies. Like it or not. Let's see if we can wade through this section of Deuteronomy, eyes wide open and ready to accept what God is teaching us without judging it. Because that's what we tend to do. First in verse 10, for Israel to offer a town peace before they attack it means that they're to offer it favorable terms of surrender. This isn't about making buddies. That town is given an opportunity to simply open their gates to Israel's army and submit. Ah, but it means even more. It also inherently means that the leadership of that town agrees to become part of the community of Israel. The level of how integrated they become into Israel depends on whether they're satisfied to be resident aliens, in other words, part of Israel, living among Israel and subject to Israel's laws, but not becoming official Israelites. Resident aliens are those who wish to retain their foreign identity while at the same time living within the community of God. The other extreme is that anyone, including those mentioned in verses 10 through 15, who wish to become an Israelite, which means to reject their own gods, in some cases their own heritage, and to have a circumcision ceremony, 
are free to do so. And just like in society today, back then, there were shades of gray in between these two extremes, and this would determine their precise status within that Israelite community. Now, those cities and villages who surrendered when the army of Israel approached were to be spared. However, they were then to become a vassal to Israel in the sense that, as resident aliens, they could be forced to work on behalf of Israel and pay tribute to Israel. This was actually normal and usual terms of surrender to a mightier force in those days, even though in most cases we would certainly find that behavior unacceptable today. And don't necessarily envision, by the way, horrible chain gangs overseen by a cruel taskmaster and these half-starved people with sunken eyes, wearing rags and barely surviving when you think of those resident aliens of Israel as forced labor. The law of Moses goes to great length to demand humane treatment, even of slaves, and gives rights to servants. It's mainly that the government of Israel could call on them from time to time to do work, and they had no choice. They couldn't politely say, no, thank you. And no doubt, some of those who surrendered were even handed over to individual families, aristocrats, as servants, depending on the circumstances. Now, verse 12 says, what to do if that village or city refuses to surrender? And instead it decides to fight the army of Israel. Well, that town is to be put under siege. And then when the city falls, every male resident is to be executed. And all the women and all the little ones and all the livestock and all the people's possessions are to be taken as spoils of war. Pretty harsh. It's about to get worse. Let's understand a couple of important points. First, when it refers to all males being executed, it means adult males. This generally refers to men 20 years old approximately and up. Although in this case, it probably includes males in their later teens. Right? Because most Middle Eastern societies conscripted males for their military at age 16, 17. A little more maybe. The term little ones who are to be spared means all children, male and female. So the Hebrews were not being ordered to exterminate young male children. Second, every town and village had another choice that, while distasteful to be sure, this was always open to them. They could just pack up and leave before Israel attacked them. In other words, the people of Canaan full well knew what Israel was up to. This was no secret. Right? And they were aware of it when the army of Israel was getting near to where they lived and they knew what to expect when that army arrived. So there was plenty of time to move out of the land of Canaan and start a new life somewhere else with the only consequence being a loss of their land and probably an awful lot of heartache and disruption. The Lord's main interest, you see, was in establishing, was rather in establishing his kingdom by emptying the land, his set apart land, of the wicked people. He wanted them out. 
There is no instruction to chase down those who did not fight but just fled before the armies of Israel or to kill those who surrendered that didn't first make war. Now verse 15 makes it clear just which towns and cities this particular treatment that I've described pertains to. It says it's those cities and towns that are distant from the land that God is giving Israel. So in general, this doesn't deal with those locations within the boundaries of what was understood to be Canaan, the land of Israel's inheritance, the promised land. These particular towns and cities were outside of the land of Canaan, like in the Transjordan, for instance, and therefore were afforded a different set of choices than for the inhabitants of Canaan. Conversely, the rather merciful instructions of verses 15, uh, 10 to 15 were not available to those who Deuteronomy 20 next discusses. And these are described as the towns of these peoples. Now in a general sense, these peoples are all Canaanites. More in detail, we're given a group of seven nations that God once eradicated. Unlike the subject of the previous verses, these Canaanites are not to be allowed to live. Not males, not females, children, not even animals they've cultivated. This is where it really starts to get sticky. There's this group of seven nations that the Lord says are so evil that he just doesn't want them pushed out, he wants them dead. These nations are the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, and Amorites. Now please note, what I just told you about all this, because it can get pretty confusing. Okay, The term Canaanites, as used in the Bible, is both a general name for anyone living in the land of Canaan, but more technically... It's a tribe or a nation of direct descent from Noah's grandson, Canaan. So from a genealogical and tribal standpoint, they're not necessarily related to those other six nations listed here. Here's the problem with those seven nations who represent most of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They worship false gods. They have abominable practices. And they stand firmly in opposition to Jehovah. Further, they represent a severe spiritual danger to Israel because Israel is certain to adopt some of their wicked practices if these pagan folks are allowed to survive and intermingle with God's set-apart people. In other words, these various Canaanite tribes would represent such a bad influence on the Hebrews that it was an unconditional requirement by God upon Israel to annihilate these people and show them no mercy at all. Now it's interesting to know, so that we don't get the wrong idea, this was not about the belief system of the Canaanites that was the real problem. It was their abominable ritual practices that God so detested. That all of these seven nations worshipped the astronomical bodies as their gods and goddesses wasn't necessarily count against them, counted against them as fatal. 
Because back in Deuteronomy 4, and later on we'll see this in chapter 32, we saw that God actually assigned the worship of stars, the moon, and the sun to them. Rather, the problem was the tremendous immoral sexual perversions, the sacrifice of human children, the drinking of blood, eating of blood, all other manner of infectious behaviors that the Lord could not tolerate to exist anywhere near his set-apart people. Since holy war had to be made upon these seven nations who lived within the land of Canaan, and their destruction was to be final and unequivocal, God made some other rules to deal with matters that would naturally occur in this process. One rule concerned how to deal with trees that grew outside the walls of a walled Canaanite city. You see, siege warfare was the standard method to attack walled cities in that era. The whole idea was that the invading army would surround the city, cut off the food supplies and perhaps the water source, and then they'd just wait for starvation and dehydration to do its job upon the inhabitants. Some cities had enough wherewithals to build the city walls around their water supply to protect it. And even to build sufficient storehouses to have substantial supplies of food for the inhabitants. So siege warfare could be a very long process that could tie up the attacking army for months. So to speed it up, various methods of attacking and breaching the formidable stone walls were developed. When we think of a siege, we often picture these these Romans and their tall towers on wheels and their catapults and their battering rams with protective coverings on them and so on. But that was a much later development. Early siege warfare involved devices as simple as ladders to get the soldiers to the top of the walls. Or they might build a fire at the base of the wall, especially if the wall was made of limestone blocks because the moisture trapped inside the limestone would turn to steam because of the heat of the fire and they would literally explode the rock, all right, thereby creating a path for the invaders to enter. Invariably, a siege involved the tactical use of wood to make ladders and then to stoke the fires. The Lord instructs, instructs Israel they're not to use fruit trees to make siege implements with because those trees provide edible food. And it would defy common sense to destroy fruit trees that are very soon going to be valuable to Israel once the enemy is dispatched. Rather, they're to use only the non-fruit-bearing trees for their siege implements of war. Now, Israel wasn't stupid. They well understood the value of fruit trees. So why did God think he had to tell them not to destroy their own food resources, as it were, by avoiding the destruction of those trees, those fruit trees? It was because Israel was operating under the law of harem. Okay? Now don't get confused. I'm saying harem, not harem. Okay? Harem literally translates as ban. B-A-N, ban. While a harem is a social unit. 
that consists of a group of wives and concubine and their children that belong to maybe a king or a potentate. The law of harem is not totally unique to Israel. The goal for Israel, however, is that since this is a holy war, and since God is Israel's holy commander-in-chief, then all the spoils of the holy war belong to him. He'll decide what's to be done with it. And since God is not a man that needs gold or silver or exquisite jewelry or beautiful fabric or sumptuous foods or slaves to do his bidding, then the only means to set aside these items as God's alone is to make them unavailable for anybody else to use. And since they are set aside for the Lord, these items are to be considered holy. And therefore no man can partake in what is holy to God. Therefore, all these things were destroyed because they belonged to God. That's the law of harem, the law of the ban. Now, we can take a look at this principle and scratch our heads and be kind of bothered by it. But this is God's law. Don't let it concern you too much that you didn't like some of what you heard tonight. Most Christian scholars don't like it either. Long ago, Jewish sages and rabbis found these instructions to be in conflict with their own sensibilities. So they began to write commentary that kind of twisted and turned the plain, direct meaning of what's been said. Christian scholars and Jewish rabbis alike have found these laws and commands on holy war so intolerant, so lacking in mercy, so harsh and severe, that it seemed to conflict with their and our views of repentance and the expressed hope that someday everybody would turn to the Lord. In effect, modern Christian doctrines and Jewish halakha have used interpretation and allegory to modify and tone down these commands of holy war and deference to other more valid and preferred, in some cases, man-made principles. I have a friend who reminds me often that he'd rather not discuss Old Testament matters. Because even though he's a believer, the blood spilling and killing and ruthlessness ascribed to God makes him really uncomfortable. Like so many of my Christian friends, the only aspect of God that he ever really wants to think about is God's love. I've stated many times that that's not only dangerous to us, in some ways it smacks of idolatry. When we think in that manner, because what we're doing is shaping God into our image when we do that. God has multiple aspects to his nature. And when we keep the ones we like and we prune away the ones we don't, we're now redefining Almighty God. How can justice exist if there are no boundaries and no consequences for violating those boundaries? To deny God's judgment and wrath as necessary aspects of his nature is to deny his sovereignty over us. Here's the thing that we can lose track of. 
I'll end with this tonight. In the very near future, the most horrible war ever to befall mankind is going to happen. It will be the war that most evangelicals claim to look forward to. The war of Armageddon. In that war, all who claim Yeshua as Savior will survive. All others will be destroyed. No mercy. No exceptions. Already the Lord has identified non-believers as his enemies, but in his mercy has determined that some of these apparently will repent and trust in him. So he's, he's withheld final judgment for a while. How much longer? I don't know. But at the battle of Armageddon, that time's passed. It won't matter if millions throw up their hands to the heavens and shout, Oh, I've been so wrong. Now I see Messiah and his unbelievable glory, and I believe. Too late. Too late. They will die to eternal separation from God, knowing the truth. Oof. But unable, unable to take advantage of it. Once the final holy war has begun, the list of those who are defined as God's enemies is etched in stone and the book is closed. The battle of Armageddon will operate precisely on the rules of holy warfare as outlined in Deuteronomy 20 and 21. Precisely. Because just like the conquest of Canaan, the battle of Armageddon is a holy war. Started by God, led by God, and it will be ended by God. Our meek and mild pacifist Messiah Jesus will be our leader in the annihilation, not of millions, of billions. You see, just as the law of Harem is to be carried out by Israel in Canaan, so it's going to be carried out by Yeshua and his army of saints and angels at Armageddon. The spoils of this war, the people, animals, everything, belongs to God. The leader of the war. And so in order that no man can utilize those spoils, what must happen in the law of Harem? They must be destroyed. Therefore, just as ordered for these seven Canaanite nations of Deuteronomy 20, so it will be the battle of Armageddon for the whole world of rebels. Total annihilation. Next week we'll begin Deuteronomy chapter 21.